Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your throne room of grace, we are grateful that we are your children. And that in Christ, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And we get to come and to lift up our brothers and sisters to you that we love dearly. So, Father, we come and, Father, we pray for Peggy White. Father, we pray, Lord, that she would come home soon. We pray, Lord, that you would restore um, the ability of her lungs. And, Father, we pray, Lord, that all of her, all that she has that is wrong would be taken away. Father, we're thankful that she is doing better. But, Father, we pray, Lord, for complete healing for her. Bring her home soon. Father, we pray for Ava Heidi, Father, who begins an intense chemotherapy next week. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be with her and that as she begins her senior year, as she's begun her senior year, Father, that she would cling to you and lean hard upon Jesus, that she would know the comfort and strength that comes from being a child of God and that you would bring healing to her. Father, I pray, Lord, that her identity would be wrapped up in Jesus, that her joy would be found as she reads your word and as she is comforted by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, would you be with Ava? Would you be with the Heidi family? Father, for Vic Adams, who has sciatica, and it is intensifying, and the pain is unrelenting, Father, we pray, Lord, that he would have relief from pain, that you would bring great hope to Vic, that he would know the the joy of meditating on your word. And Father, we pray for healing. Father, we think about those in our midst who have cancer. Father, we think about John Harvat. We think about Cindy Hemberg. We think about Janelle Slater. We think about Catherine Ritter. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would bring about healing to them. Father, there will be days when it seems as if they are lonely, and I pray, Lord, that they would know the presence of the Holy Spirit, that they would know that they are never alone and that they are loved. And we pray for healing. Father, we cry out for healing for them. Father, you are the great physician. You can do all things. So, Father, we come and we ask and we plead with you to take away this this cancer. Encourage their hearts. Put a song within their mind and in their heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would help them. Father, for Vaughn Heck, we're grateful that he has a diagnosis now. And we pray that the doctors would know how to treat him and to care for him. Father, we thank you for answering the prayer of diagnoses, and now we pray, Lord, for healing and hope. Father, help Vaughn to be able to go to school, help him to interact with other kids, give him strength, and take away the pain. And Father, for our our dear sister Elaine Jones, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be merciful to her, that she would know the love of the Father and a fellowship with the Spirit and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you help? And Father, as we think about those in our midst too, we know that there are unspoken requests too, Father, of of pain and suffering, of of relationships that are broken, Father, of of discord within homes and and frustrations at work. And Father, we pray, Lord, that we would run to you, that we would find great hope in the midst of difficulty. Father, we live in a sin-ravaged world, and Father, where everything seems to be bent and twisted and distorted. We, we live in a world filled with selfishness, and so Father, Jesus, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father, would you burst forth into some of these issues, into these relationships, into these situations, and, and some of these frustrations, and would you bring peace? Father, where there is chaos, we pray that Jesus would rule and reign in peace. Father, would you help, and would you show up? 
And might we believe all the more. So Father, help us as the people of God to meditate upon your word, to hide your word in our heart, to run to you our strong tower. Lord, help us. And Father, we pray, Lord, that as a church, that we would be a church that proclaims the gospel, that we would love Jesus and that his name would become greater. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would even raise up more missionaries in our midst. And Father, we would not only think about missionaries being overseas, but that we would think of ourselves as missionaries once we walk out these doors to our neighbors, to our family members, to those who don't know Jesus. Father, there is so much pain and anguish outside of these doors. And Father, the words of life, the words of the gospel are meant to bring forth peace and life and the flourishing. So Father, I pray, Lord, that with great courage and boldness, but also with great humility, that we would bring the gospel message to those who do not know you, that we would do so because we love you, that we would do so because we cherish you in our hearts. And Father, we must commend what we cherish. So Father, help us. And Father, we pray, Lord, for our our government. Father, we think about our President Joe Biden. We think about our Vice President Kamala Harris. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would bless them, that they would know what is right from wrong, that they would support um, what is holy, and that you would send and surround them with men and women who will direct and guide their path. And Father, we pray that they would not fear men, but that they would fear you. Father, help us. Help us to pray more for our elected leaders than we complain about them. Father, help us. May we be the people who are praying for and undergirding them with prayer. Father, we also pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, as a church to to be generous. Father, that we would be a people who love to give, to give of our time, talent, and treasure. And Father, as we collect the tithes and offerings and as we give, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would give with, with glad hearts, knowing that every good thing comes from you. So, Father, help us. Father, save us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, children are dismissed for Children's Church this morning. So if you are in that category, you are welcome to leave. I did notice uh, today that it seemed like some of you were a little bit tardy to church. So don't make me take away your donuts. I don't want to do that. Um, cause I like donuts a whole lot, you know, I love, I love donuts. So, um, but I am glad that everybody's fellowshipping. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to the gospel of John this morning. We are in John chapter one, verses one through 18. I probably will not get all the way through John one, one through 18, but we're going to start with the prologue to the gospel of John. So having found, uh, the gospel of John again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Uh, Let us read God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Their true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So, the Gospel of John. Let's, let's dig into this book. It is a book written by the Apostle John. He goes from, it's interesting, John writes this probably in around somewhere, probably 75 to 80 AD. And he's writing this book, and he has a specific purpose in mind with this book. And I'll refer to this purpose over and over again until we actually get it. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So rather than me uh, tell you what the purpose is, let me tell you what John says the purpose of his book is. And we see this in this way. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, meaning the words that are written by John for the people, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So why did John write this book? All the stories that are within this book, everything that John writes are so that people would be led to the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you might understand who Jesus is, and that in believing, you may have life in his name. I find it very interesting that um, this week, you know, when I, when I was thinking about the Gospel of John, I also came across um, this image, um, which is the, uh, put, put the image up on the, on the screen. This, I don't know if you know this or not, but this is actually the Kansas University seal. Some of you have probably never seen this, um, but, and many of you may have seen this, but do you see who's in the middle of the seal? In the middle of the seal is Moses at the burning bush. Moses at the burning bush. I mean, to think about this, matter of fact, not only is it there, but the Latin that goes around the KU seal. By, by the way, I need Kevin Heingartner to like make me a shirt um, so that I can wear it, so I can have the Kansas seal with Moses on it, you know, where I have KU across there. But the, the Latin says this, I will see this great vision in which the bush does not burn. There is this idea that in the Kansas seal, Moses is seeing the burning bush, and he's saying, I will come and see this vision in which the bush does not burn. But not only is the Kansas seal there, go to the second uh, image. Did you know that there's a statue of Moses and the burning bush on the campus of KU? It's right there, I think, in um, Smith Hall, across from the KU Union. And so I think it's funny that I've never heard anybody say like, hey, I'll meet you over by the burning bush. (laughs) I'll meet you over there by the statue of Moses. 
It's very interesting that on the KU's campus, we actually think about this burning bush. And so if you go and you walk by the burning bush, I want you to think about this. What was Moses drawn to and what was he looking at? Now, I think that there's this idea that the burning bush was a theophany. It was a, um, a picture of who God is, but he was drawn to it. And there's a sense in which the gospel of John is written so that, you can turn those off, the gospel of John is written so that we might believe and that by believing, we may have have life in his name. And, and he doesn't mean just like life, like we're breathing, you know, our hearts are beating, but life meaning like joy and flourishing in the midst of our life here on earth. To know Christ is to know joy. To know Christ is to know forgiveness. To know Christ means that you are forgiven and loved and you are attached and reconciled to God the Father because of your union with Christ. And we are all seeking that idea of belonging and forgiveness. That's why John writes his book. Now, John is unlike um, many other writers uh, in, in this sense, um, is that the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, John does not begin with the nativity. And John does not, like, like in Luke 2, he does not be begin with genealogy, like in Matthew 1, but John begins in eternity. It's almost as if um, uh, the Gospel of John is similar to when you ask somebody to tell you about the history of KU basketball, and they begin to talk about 1922 and 23 when KU won the championship the first time. They go way, way back, right? As opposed to, like, say, maybe the Gospel of Mark, where really they talk about KU basketball and they talk about 2022. They talk about the immediate history of KU basketball. But John, he goes way back. He goes far, far back. And when we think about John chapter 1, um, and, and let me just say this too. Um, the prologue to John chapter 1 is a little enigmatic. And, and so there's been times where I've actually told people, hey, one of the best books that you can read to understand who God is and understand the gospel is the gospel of John. And I've literally told people, but you're probably going to have to get past the first 18 verses. Because there's a lot of um, what I would call, you know, ob, ob, uh, I can't even say the word, but there's like a concealing that goes on. And there's times when I look at the Gospel of John, I'm like, rather than concealing who Jesus is, why don't you just reveal who Jesus is? Rather than have this po po poetry of the word, what is the significance of that? But I, I think in the first section, in, in John 1 through 5, what we see is John is trying to get us to understand the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. So that we can understand Jesus as he relates to his Father. You see, it's all about the relationship with regard to this first prologue, because there's the relationship between God and the Father, the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist, and it's the relationship between those who believe in Jesus and those who don't believe in Jesus. What is the relationship that we have with Jesus? But initially, here's what we find um, in John 1. Look, at it. it says, in the beginning was the Word. And so initially you're like, well, okay, the Word's there, but what does that mean? Well, certainly, when we look at verse 14, what we find is, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son. 
Certainly, what John is referring to when he says the word is he's referring to Jesus. And in the midst of referring to Jesus, he's talking about the eternality of Jesus. He's talking about that Jesus is God himself. You see, what was happening in the, um, the early church, by the time John is writing his gospel, is that there are people who are saying, you know, Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great moral thinker, but he wasn't really God. He, matter of fact, maybe he was like God, but he was more like a sub-God. He was less than God. Actually, we see the same thing happening today with Jehovah's Witnesses and also the Mormon church, who take Jesus and they diminish his glory. They still, well, he's a God, but he's not the God. And what happens in John 1 is John, the, the apostle, is, is combating the Arian heresy uh, that would come later, but he's combating these people who are Gnostics, who, who think they have this special knowledge, and they're, they're diminishing the glory of, of who Jesus is. And what we find is that in the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God. Now, there's this Trinitarian relationship that's going on. It's not that God was alone, but that God, even in Genesis 1, and, and when, remember, if you can think back to Genesis 1, when God says, let us make man in our image. Well, who is God speaking to when he says, let us make man in our image? He's talking about the, you know, pre-incarnate uh, son right there. We're talking about the Word. In the beginning was the Word. So before anything was made, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was separate from, but he was also God. Now, there is an aspect of this that I don't think that we can completely understand and wrap our minds around because it is the Trinity. We cannot completely wrap our minds around the Trinity, but rather we are called to understand this as best we can. Um, and to admire who Jesus is. Um, in, the, in the midst of this, let me, let me say, um, not only is Jesus eternal, he was with God, but we also find that Jesus was also a person distinct from God the Father, and yet one with him. J.C. Ryle says this, John tells us that the Word was with God. The Father and the Word, though two persons, are joined by an ineffable union. Where God the Father was from all eternity, there also was the Word, even God the Son, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal, and yet their God had one. This is the great mystery. Happy is he who can receive it as a little child without attempting to explain it. That's the mystery of the Trinity. Not only is Jesus a person distinct from God and yet one with him, but Jesus is very God. And the Lord was God. He was in the beginning with God. Not only was he in the beginning with God, but all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We see that Jesus is the creator of all things as well. You see, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is trying to get us to understand that before the incarnation that he speaks about in verse 14, he's trying to talk about the preeminence of who Jesus is. That not only is he God, not only is he um, distinct from God, and yet one with him, and he's very God, that he's the creator of all things, but we also see in this very first section that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the source of all spiritual life and light. In him was life. Life. 
meaning that without Jesus, there is no life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, as we think about that, um, I want us to, to, to really dwell, just for a few moments, on the idea that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word that he keeps saying. Now, again, why does he use the term Word? Why? Why does John use the term Word rather than just come out and say Jesus, right? Well, I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is John uses the word because in the very beginning, at the beginning, in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. Now, if you're a Jewish person reading that, you immediately hearken back to Genesis 1, where it says, in the beginning. And so the idea of the word, and how did God create all things? By his words. He spoke it into existence. So if you're a Jewish member of, of John's reading, reading, a Jewish member of the audience reading this gospel, you're immediately thinking, okay, what you're saying is that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father, that he is the creator, and, and, and really your mind is blown right there. You're, you're, you're getting the argument that Jesus is preeminent. Now, there's another aspect of this, and I think that this is fascinating, um, and, and it's this, is that the word logos, or logos, the Greek is logos, that's the word, is one of the most significant terms in Greek philosophy. So as John is writing, he's not only writing to a Jewish audience, but I think he's also picking up the term logos in this way. It's a significant term, and by using this word, John is building a bridge from the Greek philosophical world to the Jewish thought world of the Bible. You see, um, one of the earliest Greek philosophers was Heraclitus in the 6th century BC, and he thought about the fact that things constantly change. His famous illustration was that you can never step twice into the same river. It is never the same because the water has flowed on. Everything is like that, he said. But if that is true, how can there be order in the world? You get it? So Heraclitus is like, everything's moving along, but how is there any order in the created world? Again, 6th century BC, right? Here's what he said. His answer was the logos, the word or reason of God. This was the principle that held everything together in a world of change. There is a purpose and design to the world and events, and this is the logos. The Logos fascinated Greeks from Heraclitus onward. What keeps the stars in their courses? What controls the seasons? Order and purpose are revealed everywhere in the world. Why? The answer for the Greeks is the Logos, the divine logic, the word Plato. I don't know if I've ever quoted Plato in a sermon, but forgive me. But Plato said, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word a Logos who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. You see why John used the term Logos? Why he said the Logos came? You see, when, if Plato, and everybody's reading Plato back then, 
He's saying, listen, you Greeks, the very thing that has most occupied your philosophical thought about which you have been writing for centuries, the Logos of God, has come to earth as a man, and we have seen him. This means that Jesus is the one who gives meaning to life in this world. People today, people today are living without purpose or meaning, which is why our affluence fails to content us. Speaking in Greek terms, John says that Jesus is the Logos, the word who bears to us the mind and heart of God. I want you to think about that in in light of the idea that this building a bridge between the Greek world and and, and, and the Jewish world using word, and, and certainly the word is the creator, but the Logos was also meant to be the revelation of God so that we would know how to live and what to believe. I think about that today. Um, in, in, this, um, in this way. Carl Truman writes a, a book called A Strange New World. And in it, he says, in a world where, where old identities are implausible and where people still wish to belong, the most powerful narratives and the strongest communities can offer a sense of belonging and security that all human beings crave. You see, by talking about Jesus as the Logos, as talking about this idea of relationship and belonging. It's it's saying that this Jesus is the one who is the answer to all of life's questions. And and really, even today, I mean, think about this. Even today, you know, whether or not you're a Greek or, you know, a Jew or, you know, you're you're a a Laurentian today, right? Like, there's this sense in which We all long to be in community. We all long to belong to something, right? There's this longing, and and, and really that that comes out of this idea of relationship that we have, okay? And, And really that idea of needing and wanting to be in relationship is actually a part of us being made in the image of God in this way. You see, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this inner Trinitarian relationship form the perfect relationship. And they, they love being connected to one another. And when we, as the people of God, are being born in his image, after his image, we are also born for relationship. And so there's a sense in which all of us need to belong, all of us are searching for communities, and, and because of that, we are pursuing communities, but the problem is we have sin that entered in and everything becomes bent, distorted, and warped, right? Like, for example, I'll just throw it out there. Social media, right? Social media arises because we are made in the image of God and we long for relationship with other people. We long for that. So whether it is, you know, Facebook, Instagram, or Be Real, you know, we are longing for relationship with other people. The problem is, is that social media is really false intimacy. 
It's really a false intimacy that we have. Now, I'm not saying that every aspect of social media is bad, because again, I think that it comes from the fact that we're looking for community, we're looking for belonging, we're looking for relationship, but if that's the only relationship you have, if that's the only belonging you have, if that's the only community you have, then you have a false intimacy and false relationships. We need to have real relationships with a body, with community that are physical and tangible. And what we find is, you know, in, and, and I love this, I love this so much when we look at this, the, the, the idea of life. You know, this, this word life is picked up by the Apostle John and he uses it 36 times. 36 times in his gospel, he uses the term life over and over again. In him was life meaning that in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This idea of relationship, this idea of community, we find all of that in Jesus. I mean, that's the, the, the beauty of what we find in the gospel and in the gospel community that we have in the body of Christ. You know, like brothers and sisters, I love the fact that I get to call you brothers and sisters. Because if you're in Christ, then spiritually you are my brothers and sisters. You're a part of the family of God. And then if you are in Christ, you belong. I mean, many of us have been searching for a place to belong our whole lives. But when we find Jesus, we find his body and we can belong together. Now, you guys all know that if you punch a, put a bunch of broken sinners together in a belonging community, there might be a little bit of friction at times, right? Just a little. And yet you belong. And there is a deep joy and comfort that we receive by being a part of a community. When, when, people, when people are ill and we rally around them and love them, and care for them. When, when people have new babies, we rejoice. When people are, are suffering, when people are tired, when people are weary, when people, you know, all of these things, we get to rejoice with those who rejoice. And you know what? When you're rejoicing with other people and rejoicing together, it's so much fun. Like, when you go to a wedding and you know everybody because they're all part of your family of God, and there's, there's dancing. And yes, sometimes Presbyterians dance at a wedding, you know, occasionally. Not well, but I mean, we, still, I mean we, we, we dance occasionally, right? And you know, there's great joy that accompanies that being a part of the family of God and being together. Now, when, when we come around and we rally around those who are suffering, those who are suffering feel the presence of God through the prayers of those around them. Because sometimes they're so overwhelmed they don't even know how to pray for themselves. But when they know that 100 or 200 or 300 people are, are lifting up them upon the, the wings of prayer, there's great comfort that comes. Let me say this too about this particular verse. This particular verse is, is just so, so sweet in this way. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, when I think about meditating on the Word of God, it comes something like this, that we as the people of God are meant to meditate on, um, on the Word of God. I'll just illustrate it like this for me this week. 
Some of you know that last week we went to Virginia. We went to go see family. went to the beach. You know, did some fun stuff on vacation. And, uh, and I don't know what it is, but like I have gotten to the point now, whereas I um, have gotten older, I have become more anxious as I've gotten older. I don't know if any of you have experienced this. As you get older, you become more anxious. You know, like, I think when I was younger, I was more angry. Now I've moved into a more anxious phase of my life. And I'm like, I really want it to end. Um, I'm kind of looking forward to the addicted stage. You know, like, maybe that's what I'll end up doing. I don't know. I hope not. But, but you know, like, this anxiety. And so what happens is, I'm in the midst of, like, I'm, I'm flying, and I'm by myself because, you know, we were in the C section of Southwest, and after the cattle herd, I couldn't sit with Katie or William. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I start thinking about the plane, and I think you have a tube hurtling through space and time, and I start getting nervous, right? Anxious. And I didn't used to be an anxious, anxious person. I just didn't have to, I, I, I didn't think about it. Maybe I was ignorant. Maybe that was, uh, you know, I was just ignorant, so I wasn't thinking about these things. But as I'm doing it, my heart literally begins to pound faster. And I literally begin to sweat a little bit. And I'm like, what is going on inside of my body that is causing me angst? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, that guy's crazy. There's no way. You know? I, mean, I mean, some of you know, though, like there's a physiological thing going on inside of me. And at the same time, I'm also studying for a sermon. And I came to this verse, and I'm like, Lord, would you please help me meditate on this? And it was this. I'm telling you, this verse was very sweet to me this week when it said in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And I just read that verse and said, Lord, would you please help me to understand that the light of Christ pushes out the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of you who struggle with despair, some of you who struggle with anxiety, the darkness feels as if it's just going to envelop you and overwhelm you. And this verse, the light shines in the midst of that darkness. And what does it mean that Jesus is my life? And that if I am with Jesus, nothing, nothing that can happen to me that is outside of his will. And he is my father and that he loves me. So as I'm thinking about that, I'm I'm thinking about this and I'm getting worried and I'm thinking, what is the worst thing that could happen to me on this airline flight right now? The worst thing that could happen to me physically is that this plane goes down and then I get to see the face of Jesus, my Savior. And I'm telling you that there's something comforting. There's something wildly comforting to meditate upon the Word of God. Because as we hide God's Word in our heart and as we you know, allow it to, to inform us and to guide us. I think about the idea of meditation. Let me uh, read from you uh, just a quick Puritan quote. You know, without meditation, the truth of God will not stay with us. We need to meditate upon it. The heart is hard and the memory is slippery. And without meditation, all is lost. Meditation imprints and fastens a truth in the mind as a hammer drives a nail to the head. So meditation drives a truth to the heart. Without meditation, the word preached or read may increase notion, but not affection. I love that because certainly my heart heart is hard and my memory is slippery. 
and I need to be meditating upon the Word of God, especially in dark times, difficult times. I mean, whether or not you've had a dark time this week, how many of you feel, and you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you feel like the world is spiraling out of control at times? Like you read the news, you, you see what's going on, you read about you know, women being abducted in the middle of Memphis. I mean, you read about all these things, you read about you know, war that's going on, and you read all of these things and you go, this is broken, and then you come to the God's word and you go, but the darkness will not overcome it. The darkness will not win. And in the midst of that, in the midst of your own life, that brings great comfort to your soul. The promises of God are meant to be hidden in our hearts so that we will know what is true from what is false. And to believe in the lie that we are alone and forgotten. Again, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, the true light, let me skip over verses 6 and 8. I'm not going to get through all this. That's okay. Um, I got a job for at least one more week. All right. In verse 9, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Again, talking about the eternality and the creative force of who Jesus is, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and, to, and his own people did not receive him. Now again, what, what John is doing is he's giving us a prologue talking about Jesus will go to the Jews, and the Jews will continually reject him. The people who should have been waiting for him have rejected Jesus. But he says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. There's this, this gospel truth that when you believe in Jesus and you trust in Jesus, the transforming power of the gospel brings you into the family of God. And so not only do you belong in, the, in the, the local church, but you belong in the family of God for eternity. That should comfort your souls by believing in Jesus. There's a um, story. Um, let me just read the story about, about the Christian evangelist Harry Ironside. Uh, again, you know, a long time ago you know, generations ago, was once preaching outdoors in San Francisco when a famous atheist approached and handed him a card. And it read, Sir, I challenge you to a debate with me, to debate with me the question, agnosticism versus Christianity in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at four o'clock. Ironside read the card aloud and replied. Here's how he replied. He says, I'm very much interested in this challenge. Therefore, I will be glad to agree to this debate on the following conditions. Namely, in order to prove that Mr. and you don't have a name, Mr. So-and-so has something worth fighting for and worth debating about, he will promise to bring with him to the hall next Sunday two people. One man who was for years what we commonly call a down-and-outer, 
a man who for years was under the power of evil habits from which he could not deliver himself, but who on some occasion heard the glorification of agnosticism and his denunciation of the Bible and Christianity and whose heart and mind as he listened to such an address were so deeply stirred that he went away from that meeting saying, henceforth, I too am an agnostic. (laughs) And as a result of imbibing that particular philosophy, found that a new power had come into his life. The sins he once loved, he now hates, and righteousness and goodness are now the ideals of his life all because he is an agnostic. Ironside likewise asked the atheist to bring a woman who had similarly been delivered from corrupt living by the power of unbelief. Can you please bring someone like that? Then Ironside turned to his side of the bargain. I will bring with me at least a hundred men and women who for years lived in just such sinful degradation as I tried to depict but who have been gloriously saved through believing the gospel which you ridicule. I will have these men and women with me on the platform as witnesses to the miraculous saving power of Jesus Christ and as present-day proof of the truth of the Bible. At this, the atheist walked away, for while Ironside could easily produce a hundred men and women transformed by the light of Jesus, the secular atheist could not produce one man. You see, in Christ, we find life. And the light drives out the darkness. And everyone who believes in Jesus is called a child of God. There is a um, story, and this is the the last um, little bit, but there's a story about John. I think it goes well with John's prologue because it's, it's much bigger you know, John's prologue, these 18 verses, and we'll, we'll continue on next week with it. The prologue is much bigger. It, it's, as you read it, it, it just gets much bigger. There's the story um, in C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, in the very last book, The Last Battle, when Tyrion and Lord Diggory are looking into the stable, and there is that astonishing statement that inside of the stable that they're looking at, it was actually bigger than what was outside of the stable. I don't know if you guys know that story. But as they're looking into the stable, they're like, we look in and everything is far bigger. At which point, um, Lucy says, in our world too, a stable once had something in it bigger than the whole world. Would you pray with me? Father, as we enter into um, a time of studying the gospel of John, I pray, Lord, that the word of God would drive out the darkness of fear and doubt and that we would know that we are forgiven and loved. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would find our identity wrapped up in Jesus, that we would find a belong, a place to belong, a community of which we can be a part of. And Father, I pray, Lord, that in believing, we might have life in his name, life abundant, a flourishing life filled with joy. Father, help us as we study. May we meditate upon your word. For, Father, often our hearts are hard and our memories are slippery. Help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.